welcome to the third installment of Talent Summit Back to Basecamp podcast series. We've invited some of our most influential speakers and special guests back to Basecamp to share insights and thought leadership as the working world transforms at pace as a result of the COVID crisis. This series will explore how HR leaders can affect a more robust recovery while enhancing the working lives of our people. I'm Robert McGillifaudrig, founder of Talent Summit and CCO of Sigma Recruitment. Joining me in Basecamp this week is world-renowned TED speaker, entrepreneur, author, Margaret Heffernan, where we'll explore her latest thinking from her book, Uncharted, that looks at our addiction to prediction and how leaders can create a more robust organization, legitimacy in decision-making, and more meaningful collaboration. Welcome, 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 uh, and good afternoon from a sunny Dublin. Uh, welcome to the third installment of uh, Back to Base Camp Talent Summit series. So after a false start, Two weeks back, uh, I'd like to thank all of you uh, for viewing back in, uh, tuning back in rather. Uh, we've over 1,100 registered from over 20 countries around the world. Uh, welcome to Take Two. I'm privileged um, to have interviewed a lot, of, a lot of thought leaders from around the world on all things business, HR um, and leadership um, over the last decade. And for me, Margaret Heffernan has one of, been one of the most fascinating, gracious, inspiring, warm people I have had the pleasure uh, of getting to know and has become a great friend and collaborator of ours at Talent Summit. Margaret, Kay Millifold, Thank you very much. It's really great. It's all working this time. I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. Um, but look, look, there's a lot of things in your book that kind of sprung to mind when we were going through it last week. Uh, I certainly felt like the uh, the the, um, the 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 non-techie person who was trying to disarm a bomb and having two people <laughs> in my ear saying, "Cut the red one. Cut the red one. Cut the blue one. Cut the blue one." And ultimately, I probably <laughs> cut them all. So apologies and thanks so much for coming back. Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, one of the things that was so nice about that experience was seeing on the chat how pleasant and forgiving everybody was being. I mean, it was just adorable, really. And at a time where a lot of people can get a bit short tempered, it was just, you know, a real tribute to your audience that they were so understanding. Well, we've a great community and highly engaged. And I think we're all going through a bit of a, yeah, a common challenge right now. Yeah. And it's important that we lean upon each other and we look for inspiration and support of yeah. one another, which again is, I know, uh, runs very deep with yeah. you. Margaret, how have you been the last couple of weeks? Uh, frantically, insanely busy. I mean, just, yeah, I mean, I like being busy, you know, but but this has really been something else. I mean, partly, obviously, I've been promoting my book, but also very shortly after the lockdown started, I volunteered to run a delivery service for my local farm shop. So. I mean, I was just horrified to think, oh my God, I'm back in management and now I run this team of 10 people. And I got, 
you know, I mean, I've run companies of hundreds of people, but suddenly I got nervous thinking, oh my God, maybe I've forgotten how to do this. <laughs> yeah, back on the tools, back on the tools. We, we have the, um, we've got the chief people officer of Just Eat on uh, the next series on Thursday. Right. I must connect the two of you. Well, I think his business is a little bit bigger than mine. <laughs> it's been really lovely because, you know, we have all volunteers. Yeah. They love doing the work. And, um, and every time you deliver food to somebody who's isolated, and, and mostly these are people who, you know, they're either health compromised or they're quite elderly. You know, they are so yeah. gracious and grateful and happy to see you. And it just, it just doesn't feel like work. You know, it's just a joy. Let, let, let me go back to your observations uh, of that, Margaret, if I may, and what you've experienced over the last couple of weeks. You, you mentioned your book, um, Uncharted. Um, mm -hmm. And Margaret, I, I haven't read a book so quickly since my Ladybird days. Um, and really, it is a credit to you. It's, it's, it's an eloquent patchwork of beautifully told stories. And I really honestly could not put it down. I got it read in two days and that is very, very unlike me. Um, for those who haven't seen it or heard about it, uh, Uncharted, it received its first US review. I saw it come in overnight, Margaret, and the word that was used um, to describe it um, was graceful. And I thought it was a really good word. And the book itself looks at our prediction, uh, sorry, our addiction to prediction um, and ultimately argues that we can't predict the future. But Margaret, the, the book begins with a story of the, the, the forefathers of forecasting who died of tuberculosis. And it concludes with a chapter on pandemic preparation. So for a book that looks to argue you can't predict the future, peppered with stories of pandemic preparation, published on the eve of a global pandemic you took a really good stab at it, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's really funny. I'm in the middle of recording the audiobook at the moment. We actually built a recording studio in my house to be able to do this. Um, and it's really striking, I mean, even to me, that, you know, it is bookended, as you say, by epidemic. Yeah. And then in the middle of it, there's, um, you know, there's a, a, flu a flu epidemic in the United States, or rather a flu scare in the middle of it. And, um, and then there's quite a lot about the AIDS crisis. So, you know, I was truly not conscious of this when I was writing the book, but epidemics kind of weave their way through the book. And I think, you know, really that's because they are a spectacular example of uncertainty. Because what we know about epidemics is that they're always with us. There always have been, there always will be epidemics. Um, so we, that we can be certain of, but we can't predict them because every single one is unique. So people who work in epidemics and epidemiology have what, you know, this is their idea of a joke, which is if you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic. <laughs> They're all completely different and there's no profile of a pandemic. So you can't start looking for the early warning signs because they all emerge in different places, different pathogens at different times, different seasons. So, so that combination of being both very certain, they're always going to happen, and uncertain, don't know where, what, or when, seem to me to be emblematic of very many, many aspects of our lives today. 
So in a way, it's not a complete surprise that the theme kind of runs throughout the book because they are the perfect expression of the kind of uncertainty that I think we find all around us. I mean, the Bank of England has said there will be future banking crashes, that's certain. They don't know where or when or what will kick it off. So there's a lot of uncertainty in our lives. And I think, you know, I think we've been kind of beguiled by technology to think that everything could be predictable. I mean, if my GPS can say it'll take me you know, two hours and three minutes, you know, to get from here to my destination, mm. surely if we can be that precise, we can predict everything. And of course, once you start looking at where prediction fails, as I've been doing for the last couple of years, you start noticing how often it's wrong. So recently, well, not that recently, but in February, beginning of February, I had to drive from my home to North Wales to teach at a, at a school for civil servants. And my GPS said it would take three hours and it took five and a half. Right? North Wales is very unpredictable territory. Right? Um, you know, and actually what you learn about GPS is the shorter the journey, the more accurate the estimation will be in the same way that weather forecasting can be very accurate for tomorrow, probably okay for the weekend, absolutely hopeless to tell you what kind of summer it's gonna be. And yet, you know, the things we want to know about are the big things quite far out. And I think you know, what, what I've learned in, in the course of writing the book is just all the reasons why these, these longer term forecasting won't work. So the experts, well, the experts just say, if you're really outstanding and you do this for a living and you're incredibly self-critical, the furthest you can see out with any accuracy is 400 days. And if you're like you and me and, you know, you kind of pay attention occasionally to various odds and sods, um, you're probably reliable, maybe at best 150 days. And I think that just kind of changes everything. And, and the long term is simply a series of short terms. Um, and it, it's interesting how we always look beyond that. And uh, as the book argues that in some ways we are predicted uh, and like that, like I think of economists, I think back of like, um, like people who could tell the future were valued in society uh, right back to, um, to, to, to the early days of man. Um, huh. And even how that kind of comes kind of full fold now when you speak about uh, pandemic preparation, you use an interesting analogy uh, that I'd like to explore with you, Margaret, if I may. And in describing the difference between something that's complex and something that's complicated, mm. you, you pinch an example uh, from epidemic preparedness mm. and you describe the preparation or being prepared for several um, uh, illnesses and having to do research development and to manufacture um, kind of vaccines to cover those possible pandemics. You describe that as just in case. Mm -hmm. And then the flip from once one of them breaks out, it goes from just in case to just in time systems to produce that particular vaccine on mass and to get it deployed mm -hmm. at pace. How does that analogy play out in business most right now? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, it's so the difference between complicated and complex is quite important. And I used to be quite skeptical of a lot of the stuff around complexity. And I think, 
there is a lot of nonsense talked about it, but I think the fundamental difference is crucial. So complicated systems are very linear, they're very controlled, um, and they do repeat themselves, which means that they're very much improved and enhanced by efficiency. Mm. So if you think of, an, of you know, in, in the old days when we used to get on planes and fly to places for fun, right? Six weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we would, um, we would go to the airport, we would check our bags, and that was a complicated ex experience because it's pretty much the same every time, regardless of the bag or the airline or how you're feeling, right? Yeah. Um, and so that has been really made fabulously efficient with technology and automation and all that kind of thing. Once you get in the air, you have just crossed over, if you like, to a complex environment, which is there are all sorts of things that can happen now over which you have no control. So there may be a geese strike, there may be a bug in the software of the plane's operating system, um, there may be a fault in part of the very complex engines that run the planes. And for that reason, planes are built with more engines than they need and more operating systems than they need because they need to be robust, which is to say they need not to fail if one piece breaks. And that's because the cost, if one, if, if they were to fail, is so enormous. So they're, if you like, over-engineered, right? They have more engines, more operating systems. They're more expensive to buy and to maintain because of the complexity, which says, actually, on today's flight, I don't know what's going to happen. I may have flown this flight 143 times and in this plane, but tomorrow could be different. And so there's this fundamental difference between aspects of our work where we really can control it, an assembly line, for example, production of vaccines, for example, and environments where we can't control it. And we've seen this most in things like supply chains, where I think, you know, the, the Apple iPhone, I think, is made in over 100 different countries. And it, the reason for that is because they're taking advantage of local specialities, labor uh, costs, uh, raw materials, um, and currency uh, um, hedging. So it's fine-tuned to be as efficient as possible. But the problem is, once you're dealing with 100 countries and 100 different labor environments and a lot, 100 different climates, and a hundred different political environments, you've exposed yourself to this huge range of um, uncertainty. And so that means that you're now in a complex system, even though it might feel like it's complicated, it's not because there's all this stuff happening. And so one of the reasons we've seen these really unexpected breakages in supply chain around PPE or hand sanitizer or reagents for antibody testing is because we've kind of lost sight of the fact that these very, very complex supply chains are also wildly exposed to political, environmental, social, and as it turns out, pandemic um, shocks and surprises. And so I think what becomes really crucial to companies is to start being able to understand which part of my organization's activities are complicated because that's where efficiency will really be great. Just in time will be terrific. 
And where is it complex, in which case efficiency is not your friend, and you need to think much more about being robust, having more talent, more mm. resources, more flexibility than you might need. And it's funny, like if I apply that to our world uh, in recent weeks, we've kind of cut out a lot of that fat, quite frankly. And yeah. um, we probably put the head down and applied uh, just-in-time principles uh, sure. more so. In the same analogy, Margaret, you, you also cite an example uh, where the vaccines were produced just in time. And then in order to get them to those who are ill, that there was a deficit, a deficit around trust and relationships. Right. Uh, and what struck me was that you argued that relationships have to be developed and nurtured in advance mm -hmm. in order to realize the, um, the uh, to, to get them to those uh, who, who need them most. Yeah. And I'd love to know your view on what, what learning is there for us in the HR leadership community yeah. for yeah. to enable us for a more robust recovery around relationships, yeah. even though we're just surviving right now? Yeah. So I think um, I think this is quite interesting, and you'll see very different attitudes to this in different kinds of cultures. Yeah. But I think in general, companies that go into a crisis of any kind with high trust, so um, where the workforce really trusts their leaders, where the customers really trust the company, um, what we've seen historically is the companies who go into a crisis can come out of it with trust enhanced. In other words, their reputation is even stronger because the depth and quality of the relationships is such that they can adapt and respond faster and better. Mm. Companies that go into a crisis with low trust will really struggle because people don't care as much to help them, because people don't trust them well enough to do the right thing. So they lose business, they lose loyalty, they lose support. And so what I think that means for us in terms of robustness is actually a real measure of a company's resilience is the quality of the relationship between the company and all of its stakeholders, its customers, its workforce, its suppliers, and so on. And I think we've all seen, you know, that there are people at the moment who are asking for money to keep their company alive mm. and customers who are providing that money because they think, actually, I want this company to be there post-pandemic. I mean, there's a very famous chain of restaurants, rather posh restaurants in London, where you know, the way that the, the wait staff is being treated legally means that it's very hard for them to keep everybody on the payroll long term. And so they've asked their customers, will you buy in advance vouchers for this restaurant, you know, hoping it'll be there afterwards so that we can make sure that it, the people are there for you afterwards. Mm. And they've been overwhelmed with people who are happy to do this. So, so that gives them options in a crisis that the company that just treats people like you know interchangeable widgets will not have. And it's interesting because I interviewed a number of business leaders uh, who'd gone through crises of various kinds. I mean, moments where really it looked like the company was doomed. And in each of these interviews, each of the former business leaders wept, remembering how emotional an experience this had been. Each of them got through it. And so I said, you know, when it was so awful, you know, how, what was it that kept you going? 
And every single one of them said, it was my colleagues. You know, we did it for each other. When one of us was exhausted, the other one kind of, you know, shared the load. And one of them turned to me and said, you know, it was pretty much the opposite of the gig economy. We kept the company going for each other. And I think, you know, from an HR perspective, you know, there's a really hardcore lesson here, which is the quality of the relationships is a fundamental component of the resilience of the business. And it's quite interesting because I work with a you know big cross-section of companies from you yeah. know, entrepreneurial startups to gigantic corporations. And what's starting to emerge is a conversation saying, we ought in the accounts of companies to be able to design a measure of resilience for investors. And what I and which I think is a, you know, a really good idea. Because actually, you know, traditionally we've just thought cash is king. If you have enough money, you can keep going. Actually, money isn't the issue. You know, people is the issue. Mm. And so I think it's it's a very powerful moment where actually being able to say the quality of the relationship between people in this company is a benchmark standard of the resilience and long-term potential of this business. And companies that don't have that are poor investments. It's interesting. The strength of relationship like allows for it allows for tension and allows people to challenge one another very openly because the intent is aligned because of the bonds. And I know you argue to the point of, of friendship and how important friendship is in organizations. And we spoke about this in Dublin, Margaret, around when the chips are down, that it's, 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 it's people's intent and their drive for one another. And as long as it's aligned with, with, with your own action, that it's a very powerful force. And I actually picked that up in your book, Margaret. So you dedicated this book to four friends mm. who you described as going through a crisis of their own so first of all i hope they're in a good place and i hope that they're that they're well good good and good i'm glad to hear it i'm glad to hear it and you 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 thank them and you said that their creativity and fortitude sharpened your resolve and you Mm -hmm. thank them for their friendship and inspiration when we went to do this interview two weeks ago um a a colleague and friend of mine adi sent me a quote and I recall during our interview in Dublin, Margaret, you spoke very, very, um, very eloquently and very sincerely about a dear friend of yours who had passed, uh, and that was Alan Rickman. Mm. Um, I hope you don't mind me asking or um, to talk about this. Uh, so, so, so I remember that, and that really stuck with me, and it struck me, and it became a discussion for a lot of us after that, that lunch where you spoke, Margaret. Um, he sent me a quote, and I'd like to share the quote with you. In many ways, it could have been pinched from your book. Um, <laughs> and again, I'd love just to get your, 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 your sense of this. So, so Alan Rickman said this, it's a human need to be told stories. Mm. The more we're governed by idiots and have no control over our destinies, the more we need to tell stories to mm. each other about who we are, mm. why we are, where we come from and what might be possible <laughs> in so many ways that articulated and took like so many 
power punch points and lessons that were in your book, yeah. uh, Margaret. And uh, I'd love to know how you think that quote, mm. how that runs with us right now. And do, do you think the crisis has has shaped our thinking around our why mm. and what might be possible? Mm. I think it certainly has. Um, I mean, I think, you know, what, I think a couple of things. I think the mistake is to think that there is one pandemic experience. Clearly, we've, we're all having a pandemic experience. Yeah. But I would challenge this rather sentimental notion that we're all in this together. People are having radically different experiences. I'm having frankly, quite a nice experience. I live in the country. Um, you know, I have my family with me. I have lots of fresh air and lots of places I can go for walks. And, and guess what? I'm used to being working from home all the time anyway. Um, I also know single people in their early 20s who are on their own in tiny little flats in London who are going kind of quiet, quietly or not so quietly crazy. Mm. Not just because they are so excruciatingly lonely, but also because they can't even see what kind of career might be possible for them, them when this is over. You know, they were just at the beginning of their professional lives and suddenly, bang, you know, everything. Yeah. Um, certainly, you know, the people I deliver groceries to, some of them are scared to death. You know, they're almost scared to talk to me from a distance. So they're very, very different experiences here. And I think what's going to be really crucial is that we make time and space to hear all of those stories and don't succumb to the notion that there's one, which is, oh, I got time to do lots of yoga and mindfulness and I lost, you know, 20 kilos and I've never felt better in my life, mm -hmm. which is definitely one. We don't succumb to that. And we also don't succumb to the one that says everything about it was terrible. And I've even seen this, you know, in our health service that I do a lot of work with the NHS and some people are saying, oh my God, I can't believe how much more creative we're able to be. And we smash through silos and bureaucracy. And my God, you know, we, we worked together as a team. It was brilliant. And other people have said, oh my God, the bullies all came out of the woodwork command and control really came back with the vengeance and all sorts of bad behaviors we thought we'd got rid of, you know, were yeah. well and truly among us again. Um, so I think we have to, especially as people start going back to work, we have to be very thoughtful about understanding what kind of experience they've had and, you know, how many people they knew died and how sick people were and how afraid people have been. And this isn't about intelligence and it isn't about good decision-making. All kinds of weird stuff is happening to people in a very difficult time. And I think we just mustn't assume we know what their experience has been. I think that's well said. And I think we see it through the eyes of those who are somewhat privileged, Margaret, to be frank. And although this, not everyone has been infected, somebody said this last week but we've all been affected in different ways and like how that collective trauma kind of 
impacts our world like yeah. it's probably not in that near term that we spoke about it's probably in the long term but also conscious that not everyone has had a sh common shared experience and right. there's probably an opportunity on a very basic humane level to use this as a way to unite our people as they mm -hmm. reconvene and and not to you not to allow it to be a a catalyst for further division um, and and i think that's a big part of how we look to reconnect the yeah. the, the dislocated workforce force from a, a a human perspective and who better to do that to lead that than hr leaders mm -hmm. uh, so those who are viewing mm -hmm. um uh, each week margaret we bring in a view from the ground mm -hmm. and i don't know if you recall this from talent summit last year um we uh, we had a panel discussion around making the workforce more human, mm -hmm. uh, and and you called out uh, one of the contributors who was uh, Gillian French, uh, who was the chief people officer of uh, Cubic Telecom. So I've asked Gillian uh, to join us uh, to give us a view from the ground uh, for two minutes, so we can uh, frame the next stage of our discussion. Gillian, how are you? Hi. Hi, Gillian. Julian, can you hear me? Is she muted? Can you hear me? Yes, yes. I'm saying that's my tagline for this whole pandemic. You're on mute, <laughs> you're on mute. <laughs> How are you? Oh, good, good. I'm glued to listening to this. Uh, <laughs> it's good. amazing. Good, good. So, so yeah. tell me, so, so, so what's happening? What's happening in your world, and what, what's the mood music on the ground for HR leaders, Julian? Yeah, well, um, the last bit I just heard there of the talk, and I, I know it's live, so um, was about just people's different perspective. When we're doing a lot of surveys, and I'm really, really seeing that divide on how people are feeling at the moment, you know, and it's nearly 50-50. It's like 47-53, really excited about coming back to the office, extremely anxious about coming back to the office. Um, and then I'm very worried about there's a lot of people who are sort of like, this has been going on long enough. We need to just get back into the office and make it happen. Yeah. And then there's other people who are very, very worried, have had tragedy, have people in their families that have underlying health conditions. And some people just aren't aware of other people's boundaries or what they've been through. So I am actually, we've got a plan. It's like 71 steps to get us back into the office. And some people are like, why are you even bothered? You know, just stay out of the office till December a lot of bigger organizations made that decision but again some people are really suffering with mental health and um, like a lot of my week is just calling people to see they're okay I have a list of people that are, are not okay at the moment and I know you talked about you know people who are in apartments or very small spaces mm -hmm. or are separated from their family we have a lot of international employees and some of their family aren't well abroad. So there's a lot going on. So for me, as chief people officer, my role has completely changed as in most of my day is taken up with checking in on people, you know, trying to get other people to understand other people's perspective and that one size does not fit all. It's not okay for all of us to go back to the office. It's not okay for all of us to stay out of the office, you know, and we have to really get into what's happening to people and, you know, not make rash, quick decisions um, during this time because it really requires a lot of thought. Um, also, you have a lot of people saying, oh, we'll all be remote now, it's amazing. But, you know, those human moments that we're all missing, you know, and we just have a colleague whose father died yesterday and it's so different now trying to, you know, connect with him and send on our condolences, you know, 
Um, and we're really, really missing that by not being in the office together and not, you know, interacting with each other on a human level. Mm. Um, no, I mean, I think that I think that's right. And I, I was talking to a chief executive of a investment bank the other day, and she said something which I think was both so funny, but also so true. She said, you know, I even miss the people I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I thought was so smart about that was that all of us derive a degree of our sense of identity as how we stand relative to others, you know? So I might like someone because, you know, they're really creative and dislike somebody who's less creative, you know, and I'm thinking about, so compared to those two people, you know, am mm -hmm. I more or less creative, you know? So a lot of our identity comes from how we see ourselves relative to others. And without any of that, it can be quite hard to maintain a really confident, strong sense of oneself as a contributor to to a company so i think um, i think we're all i mean even i used to scream and whine endlessly about meetings you know do kind of miss some of them Gillian, what do you think we 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 miss most from being physically together uh, and what do we need to recapture do you think as we look to reconvene and get this kind of dual workforce uh, into a more stable position? Well, I think for definitely any HR person online or, you know, chief people officer or anyone who's got a people agenda. Um, for me, I'm really missing the bits where I'll be in the office. I see someone coming in who's not quite right or a meeting has happened and there's something brewing in the office. Those cues that you would get on a day-to-day -day basis, they're really powerful. Even in the canteen, just having a sandwich, you know, a lot of the time you hear, oh, well, how do you know this stuff? I know this stuff because I walk around and I speak to people and I see people in the corridor. And now you just don't have that anymore. You know, it's completely gone and you feel a little bit blindsided as a, a people um, person that you just don't have that um, interaction with people anymore and you can't see those social cues. Even when you're online today, I was doing a presentation to the senior leadership team and, you know, I cracked a joke. <laughs> I thought it was funny, but because everyone's on teams, you can't see half the faces. Most people are on mute. So by the time they lift the mute and laugh, you kind of lost it. So you don't know, are they Gillian, enjoying they weren't it? on mute. <laughs> <laughs> are, are they enjoying the presentation? Do they agree with it? You know, and, and you're just kind of talking into the abyss. Um, and even our sales guy said it to me afterwards, you know, he, you know, he was saying that happened to me yesterday. I was doing a sales pitch and I can't tell you, are they bought into us? Are they not bought into us? They didn't even turn their camera on. So that's really, really difficult to pick up on. Are people okay? And, you know, even when I ring people, we try and ask them to turn on their cameras, but I don't want to force people either because some people don't want you to see their, their, where they are or what they're doing. But trying to just talk to a black screen and check someone's okay or things that, you know, that's, that's difficult. Um, so I think, you know, this is more long term and people are going to be um, more remote. I think as HR leaders, we need to really consider the framework for remote working and the context of your business and, and how you're going to implement that and really put good thought into it because uh, it really changes the dynamic of the business. And the business I'm in, Cubic, is a relationship business. So yeah. I really appreciated what you were saying there, Margaret, and I do believe in it, that the resilience of the business is, you know, dependent on the relationships that it builds with its people, its partners and suppliers. And we've been really heavily reliant at this moment in time in asking them to assist us during this difficult period, you know. 
Gillian, Gillian, th- 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 thank you so much for sharing that view with us. I wish you and the team well and good health. Um, and, and also the colleague that you mentioned, we hope he's there. Uh, we hope he's well. And thank uh, thanks for sharing that with us. Slán, Gillian. Bye. Thanks, Emil. Margaret, G- G- Gillian mentioned some interesting points there around it being a relationship business, around the communication, the lack of feedback, and the lack of interaction. And it just reminds me of, uh, yeah, a life lesson I've had with Margaret Heffernan around social capital. Um, any thoughts on how we can double down on social capital as we now have this kind of present mm-hmm. uh, workforce with a remote workforce? And how can we really like do more? And I'm thinking and I'm reminded of communication being obviously a two-way frequency to, to message perhaps. Mm-hmm. And now it's become a lifeline for most organizations. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I would say, first of all, slow down, you know, whether when you're doing a call or a Zoom meeting or an email, take some time to think about actually what it's going to feel to to receive that communication. So I try these days to do a lot of my email first thing in the morning when I'm feeling pretty mellow. Um, you know, as the day goes by and the pressure mounts up and stuff, I can get a little brittle and that's a very bad context in which to do email. Um, you know, a lot of times I'll think I could do an email, but I'm just going to phone them, you know, just to get a sense from their voice, you know, how are they doing? So I try to just put a little extra, I pay a little extra attention to it. Um, I think we have to be a bit more forgiving. I had an interesting thing, which I think, you know, which, well, you and I had it, right? Which is, I wrote a blog post about this because um, I was doing some work with an organization that was running a little faster than they should have and started promoting an event with me um, for which we had not yet agreed a date. And, um, and so it was both presumptuous and chaotic. And my first instinct was to be just be really angry. You know, like how dare they just take it for granted that I am gonna do it and I am free, which as it happened, I wasn't. So it also put me in a position where I had to figure out, you know, who do I say no to? And before I, you know, fortunately, before I articulated quite how grumpy I was, <laughs> I had to go and cook my family dinner, which gave me some cooling off time. And I thought, actually, you, you know, I know these people and they're not bad people. So something's gone wrong. And I started noticing all sorts of other things going wrong. I mean, you know, small normal things that seem to take 10 steps where usually they took three Mm. and loads of typos all over the place, usually made worse by autocorrect, right? So emails that were virtually incomprehensible. And I thought, this is all, these are all signs of stress. These aren't bad people. These aren't incompetent people. These aren't even careless people. These are people under stress. Cut them some slack. You know, breathe deeply, be nice to them, and just give them the space to back up and calm down. Margaret, you, you know this story, right? So, so, so when I read that post you mentioned, I'd reached out to you earlier that day looking for your image after agreeing dates and agreeing that we're going to collaborate again. Um, and again, with the right spirit. Um, and I read that and I went, oh no, she's talking about me. Um, and I turned from that 
um, kind of cool, calm pilot into a very nervous pilot very quickly. Um, and, I, and I had to reach out just to make sure that we weren't talking about the same thing. And uh, you definitely did um, put me at ease now, in fairness to you, you know. But, uh, but in fairness, was a lesson in that as well. And that did make me think. Uh, I was joking about life lessons with Margaret Heffernan, but it did make me think deeply about like how we communicate as as a business and like we've a lot to lose like we've got a reputation we have like right. highly valued kind of relationships with and, and they, they matter deeply to us um and it, it did make me think about what we do because it is hard to add value when there's no uh, need for your service perhaps and and how do we stay connected and how do we look to add value mm. um and, and and that actually became part of our decision to go for a six-part series as opposed to a standalone event to continue to add value over a longer period of time if we can if we can uh, so thanks for that other life lesson margaret right <laughs> well it was purely accidental but sometimes the best lessons are right <laughs> no for sure i talk about predictability the one thing i didn't predict margaret in your book was how much ireland would feature it's mm. mentioned so many times, and I really yeah. enjoyed that. Uh, I didn't know that that your time here had such an impact mm. on you, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, it has hugely, and it's it's partly, you know, I have family in Ireland. My first husband was, was Irish. Um, I mean, I love a lot of Irish writers, so I write about Sebastian Barry and Patrick Kavanagh. Um, you know, I write about the historian Roy Foster, who's... A, a very good friend of mine and who has been horribly ill with the virus but fortunately now is is definitely on the road to recovery um so yeah i mean it's in some ways it's a more personal book than some of my earlier books and you know so i was writing about a lot of the people and um ideas that i think are are much more valuable in thinking about the future can I pick up on one of those ideas that you spoke about? Yeah. So, so the you, you're speaking about experimentation, mm. and to experiment is what we do when we don't know what to do. Right. And and you cited uh, an example of what happened here in Ireland mm. um, around the citizens' assembly um, mm. that, that 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 we used, where we kind of effectively crowdsourced opinion and views to help kind of bypass political impasse is effectively what it was. Um, why do you think the, the Irish Citizens Assembly worked so effectively? Mm. It's, a, it's a fantastic question because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about Citizens Assemblies. And I think the thing that was so extraordinary um, about the one on the Eighth Amendment mm. um, because obviously there was one before then and there's one going on now. Yeah. Um, it was so meticulously managed. So Justice Lafoy was adamant that everything about this process had to be transparent from the get-go. And, and because she knew that if it weren't, all sorts of conspiracy theories could jump up about it. Mm -hmm. And she worked with a civil servant named Sharon Finnegan, who seems to me to have had one of the most onerous jobs on earth, but who executed it just magnificently to ensure- Civil servant, was she? Yeah. Yeah. To ensure that, you know, every document, every piece of evidence, every discussion session, every um, contribution from an expert, all of that was online. So if anybody wanted to see anything, they could, which meant really long-term, 
that it engaged much of the population in the experience. So although there are only 100 citizens in the room, you know, media organizations and all kinds of organizations and individuals and groups and so on could participate in it and make submissions, which thousands of people did. So it definitely was an experiment because nobody had done one in Ireland on this scale before, where there were only citizens, there were no politicians contributing, and really where the issues were so potentially inflammatory. Yeah. And I think the thing that it most um, proved, which is a really fundamental lesson, is that that quality of transparency and the quality of thinking and evidence and debate and discussion meant that even people who didn't agree with the outcome of the referendum could acknowledge that the process had been fair. And I think this is a really profound finding because in all kinds of decisions that we have to make, it is impossible that everybody's going to be happy with the outcome. Yeah. But what it showed was it is possible that they can live with the outcome because they think that the process has honored them and listened to them. Well said. And I think that's really what we, in all of our decision-making, whether it's in government or whether it's in companies, we have to recognize that the quality of our listening will inform how the decision plays out. And I don't think we spend nearly enough time thinking about that. That's really, really fascinating and, and, and so relevant to what we're going through right now. And mm-hmm. I think being frank, most of us, don't know what's to come is the truth. And Nobody think, does. No, Nobody no, does. <laughs> no. Well, you knew when to launch your book, Margaret. So uh, I'm interested to know your views on this. So, so it made the decision-making process, mm. you argue, legitimate, mm-hmm. and that's a very, very powerful force when looking to drive social or cultural change. That everyone understands the process that you've gone through. That you have crowdsourced a spectrum of of, 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 of views from those who are on the ground uh, and whose lives it will affect. And right. therefore they make peace with the decision uh, and therefore it creates a just culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned somebody in the book, Margaret, uh, when you spoke about this, um, his name is Morris Manning. Um, Morris Manning, he's a good friend of ours and uh, he's a distinguished Irish politician and he was chancellor of the National University of Ireland, um, and you quoted him, you quoted him in your book. Uh, I rang him um, and I asked him his view. I asked him his view. So it was the evening when it was launched in Dublin Castle uh, with uh, our Prime Minister, uh, Enda Kenny. Um, and I asked him why he thought it worked so effectively. So I was keen to get a view. Yeah, so here's what he said. So he said, the assembly members presented a vast spectrum of Irish society. They themselves took it utterly seriously. Mm. And there was a true sense of optimism. He said, most importantly, they were only answerable to their own integrity. Right. Mm. And I thought, well, that is a very kind of powerful support of your own synopsis of what it meant and why it worked more importantly and there's definitely a lesson i think for all of us in how we look like again when we spoke the last time margaret you were saying it's unlikely now that 
the kind of the, the C level or the board members will go into a room and try and figure things out and come out with a plan of action. Like this is the time. And I believe that this decade is a defining, this period is a defining period mm. uh, for all leadership, but most importantly, those who navigate through this human crisis and how we come out the other end. Well, I think that's true, but I also think, you know, and I, I, it doesn't give me any joy to say this, but, you know, we're going to come out of this crisis into another crisis, and that's going to be the climate crisis. And undoubtedly, we are all going to have to make significant change and sacrifice if we're going to start living in a way and working in a way that makes our planet sustainable. And I don't think we can make decisions about who gives up what and who bears the brunt of change if we don't make really energetic efforts to inform everyone and to listen to their lived experience and to their thoughts about their future and the future of their children. And everyone in any kind of leadership uh, position is going to be under huge pressure to make very, very difficult decisions around this topic. And I don't see how they can possibly do that legitimately and hope that their decisions will be accepted and implemented if they don't develop tremendous powers of convening and informing and listening. And I think you touched on the AIDS epidemic and how that was really tackled. As a classic example, is this kind of creative conflict that you often speak about in getting all stakeholders around the table to be part of the solution. And it's not just an answer for kind of society, for kind of politicians, uh, like all stakeholders involved in that in that space need to be part of that solution. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, the, the AIDS crisis, which, you know, I was I was an adult when it started and and even I didn't understand until I did this research just how horrific it was. Um, but I think one of the things that happened in the AIDS crisis is that, you know, for the first 10 years, it felt as if the big pharma companies really didn't care because they didn't see that there was any profit to be made out of it, which meant that the gay community became extremely hostile to big pharma. But over time, they came to realize that unless they worked together, everyone was going to die. And the capacity of activists and scientists working in pharmaceutical companies to get together with all of this public wounding and nevertheless get over that to forge a solution. I think it's just a deeply inspiring example of what we're going to have to do when it comes to climate change, which is we have to stop thinking of, well, these are bad guys and we're the good guys. You know, we actually need everybody's understanding and technological know-how. And we what we have to do is forge a common goal. But if we've got that, mm-hmm. then all, you know, even if we've been at daggers drawn for the last 20, 30 years, we're gonna have to find ways to solve this problem together because it's simply too complex to leave out huge swathes of understanding and experience. I might just come to one or two questions that have come through, if I may, Mark, um, before we finish up. So, so I see one here from 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 Hugh Sheehy, um, and he asks, do you, do you see the difference between predicting and scenario planning? Hmm. Well, I think there is a huge difference, which is, of course, scenario planning does not 
aim to predict the future. Scenario planning aims to describe possible futures, but it does not do so with an aim to choosing one, as it were, and saying, okay, that's the one that we think is most likely. And there's a whole chapter on scenario planning in my book, um, partly because I think it's a, a fantastically useful exercise for many, many reasons. Um, but I think it's particularly important to nail this kind of misunderstanding that it's about coming up with a prediction because it really isn't. It's about trying to understand all the external forces that are acting upon a company or a country. And then to think about all the different ways in which the second, third order effects might play out. And then to think in each of these scenarios, what the appropriate response would be. And really scenario planning speaks to preparedness. It's about mental preparedness and it's about thinking, what are the options we have today that might give us more resilience in the future? And of course, the most famous example of this is when Shell, which had originated a lot of scenario planning, um, went through an exercise saying, well, what would happen if the oil price fell? This was in the 70s when everybody thought it's a limited natural resource, its price will go up forever. And everybody thought they were nuts even to consider it. But they said, no, no, you know, we're looking at possible futures. This is a possible future. And what they found was, well, if the oil price were going to fall, then we would do the following things. And then they looked at those and said, well, actually, those are really smart things to do anyway. So let's just do them because they're smart things. And the consequence is that when the oil price did fall, which everybody said it couldn't, right? when it did, they were in the catbird seat. You know, they were in a very, very strong position, unlike many of their um, competitors who had believed you know, that the sun was gonna shine morning, noon and night. So the point of scenario planning is not to predict, it's really to understand possibilities and to start thinking about how you might prepare for those as a way of identifying huge opportunities, um, both for robustness and um, for better operations. The difference between planning and preparedness, Margaret. Yeah. Um, I, I see another question from him here, uh, but Hugh, I, I'll answer it. Hugh, buy the book. Um, done. <laughs> uh, so that's answered. Great. Um, I have one here from, from Joanne Feely. So, so Margaret and Robert, in the current environment, employers are hiring new colleagues without meeting them face to face. Mm. And they're asking new colleagues to join organizations as remote workers. Uh, the ability to build trust in this scenario is therefore extremely limited. Uh, is there a sustainable model for the future? Mm. Well, I think, um, I mean, I understand that this is happening and I understand that in some cases it absolutely has to. Um, I think that it will take a lot more investment in those new hires in terms of spending more time with them, really to get them comfortable with others and others comfortable with them. Okay. And I think in particular, um, you know, one of the things we know is that companies don't have ideas. Only people have ideas. And people have ideas in companies that they care about. And typically what makes people care about their companies is when they start caring about the people in them. So companies that want you know, really creative, adaptable, flexible people need to work on the relationships with people. So I think it's crucial not to just think, okay, we've hired the person, we put them to work, that's it, we're done, move on. 
you know, I think a lot more effort than usual has to go into a kind of online orientation or online socialization. And I, you know, probably you want to find buddies or mentors for this new hire so that, you know, they have others, you know, because they can't obviously relate to the whole company, but they have others that they can start to get closer to until they can finally meet each other face to face. I also think, Margaret, there's probably a lesson in Alan Rickman's quote, isn't there? Like it's a human need to be told stories. And yeah. the more we need to tell stories to each other about who we are, why we are, yeah, and, uh, where we come from and what might be possible. Um, yeah. It's a nice framework. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, I have one final question, Margaret, before I let you off the hook, because um, I'm just getting too warm here, even though I'm in shorts. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful day here in Dublin. Um, if we can't predict what the world looks like, what do you think, Margaret, that HR leaders on this on this session can do to prepare themselves and our people right. to confront increasing complexity yeah. and uncertainty. So I think some of the stuff is they're probably doing anyway, but you know they're always essential, which is you know keep learning, keep reading. Um, Uncharted, know, <laughs> among other things. Um, you know, keep learning new skills, keep meeting new people, online, offline. You know, develop your own relationship skills. Um, I think, you know, there's a chapter in my book called Think Like, I think it's called Think Like an Artist. <laughs> um, I think actually in this edition, it's called Living the Questions. It has a different title in the US. I'll tell you. Go on. And it's, um, but it is about how to think like an artist. And the reason that that chapter is there um, against um, an editor's protestations, I should add is because artists deal with uncertainty all day, every day, right? They're in an uncertain line of work. When they start a book or a painting or a poem or a piece of music, they don't know how it's gonna end. They don't know how people are going to like it. Um, so they live with uncertainty. And one way that they do that, I think, is that they're deeply, uncontrollably observant which is they pay a lot of attention to what's happening around them. And I think, you know, I think that one reason artists are capable of making work that lasts for centuries is because they're both sort of super sensors picking up what's going on in their own world and making sense of it. But they're always also thinking about what's underneath that, you know, what's the sort of bedrock motivation or trend that underlies that. And so I am a very big believer that if you want to have an imaginative, creative approach to the future, you need to read more fiction, look at more paintings, spend more time listening to music, hang out with sculptures, you know, take up dance, whatever your preferred mode is. Mm. But do unconstrained, undirected, ungoal-oriented mind wandering because this will fill your mind with observations and from the observations you will start to see patterns and from the patterns you will have a developing sense of the world that you inhabit and i don't think there's any any substitute for that and i think it's why in our obsession with goal orientation um, we often kind of lose the plot so i would say and this is a good time to do that you know stop work, 
pick up a wonderful novel and read it thinking, what does this mean to me? Who are these people? Where might I find them? What makes them tick? Because in a good novel, you will learn things that will show you who your colleagues are. And your level of understanding will make you better at everything you do. So, so well articulated, Margaret. And again, another life lesson with Margaret Heffernan, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Margaret, the, 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 the one thing I learned from this book um, is that although the future is uncharted, and I think two weeks ago is an example of that, uh, it doesn't happen to us, we create it. Right. And whether that's just in case, whether it's just in time, to borrow a slogan from Nike, we simply just have to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very conscious of time and I just want to, want to thank everyone for tuning in to this session. I found it fascinating. And Margaret, as you know, your thinking runs, it runs deep with me and influences a lot of how I think about culture, collaboration, performance, leadership. But, but, but most importantly, I find myself applying it, Margaret. Uh, it sticks with me. Um, yeah, and, and, and the effects of those close to me, and that's it's beyond work. Um, and it, it, it's a magnificent thing, an uplifting thing to see how it affects those around me. Mm -hmm. um, and for that, and for the spirit in which you constantly, continuously collaborate with us over the years, Margaret, mm -hmm. I'd like to thank you. Well, it's been absolutely my pleasure. It's always a joy to work with you, Robert. And um, thank you for making the time twice. Well, let's see if we can do it three times in Dublin. Margaret, okay. thank you so much. Good health and good spirits and uh, regards to your family and your new venture in delivering food locally. Okay, and good luck to everybody. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Margaret. Yeah. So tune in this Thursday, the 21st at 3 p.m. Uh, we're exploring the, the revolution or evolution of the function of HR leadership, the CHRO or CPO role. And to see if this human crisis uh, becomes the defining time of the CPO, as the financial crisis was in many ways for the CFO. I'll be joined next week, or say this Thursday, I'll be joined um, by Jane Dada, who's the CHRO of NASA from Washington, uh, Mira Megesha, who's the CPO of Just Eat from London, and Fiona Mullen, who is the CPO of Ding here in Dublin. Thanks for tuning in. Until next week, keep well.